0: A reading from Exodus 16. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So so Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. That evening, quail came and covered the camp, The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person, and the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it until morning. The people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come so that they can see the bread I gave to eat in the wilderness when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it, then place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna with the tablets of the covenant law so that it might be preserved. The Israelites ate manna for 40 years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God you could all take your seats thanks Abigail for that really really long scripture reading these readings have been no joke uh, we are continuing our sermon series through the book of Exodus and in this series we've been looking at the highlights um, kind of looking at the story of exodus and broad strokes to learn how God saves us and how He gives us new purpose. Uh, Let's do a quick recap. We we started by looking at how the people of Israel were languishing in slavery in Egypt. We looked at how God spoke to Moses in the burning bush. Uh, We looked at how God judged the false gods of Egypt in the Ten Plagues. We looked at God's judgment and His love in the Passover. We looked at God's rescue in the Red Sea. That was last Sunday. And today, we're going to take a look at the wilderness. And in the book of Exodus, the wilderness takes place over three chapters, 15, 16, and 17. We're looking at chapter 16 this morning. And uh, to, to, to give you the context here, after escaping Egypt, God took Israel the long way to the Promised Land, the long way to Canaan. There was a direct route on a highway that went straight north, but instead of going north, God took the people of Israel south, not on a highway, but into the wilderness. This would be kind of like hiking up to Lake Tahoe and then going through the Sierra Nevadas and ending up in Los Angeles 40 years later. Uh, this was hard, and some of you are thinking, that sounds fun, but not. You know, that's only a very few of you. And I promise, if you were in the Middle East where the wilderness does not look like the Sierra Nevadas but looks like the desert, they would, that number would be even fewer. This was a hard road. Why did God take Israel in this long and difficult road when there was a shortcut to the Promised Land? And this is a question that all of us should be asking, this is such an important question, because what we see in the Bible is that the wilderness experience was not just one moment in history, but something that characterized the entire Christian life. If you look at the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, and you look at chapter three and four, the book of Hebrews tells us that the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming is all a wilderness experience. And what that means is that for every person that follows Jesus, that that sooner or later Jesus is going to lead you into the wilderness. And that's happened to some of you in this room. Some of you are in the wilderness right now, and you're asking, "Why why did God bring me here? And God wants to show us this morning that he can be found in the wilderness, some of you are under, un, 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 have gone through the wilderness and you've, you've got the scars to prove it. You have some trauma that hasn't healed. And God wants to show us through this passage today that, that there is healing, and that there is a way to process our trauma from the wilderness. And some of you have not yet experienced huge wilderness events in your life. Your life has been okay uh, and yet, this passage shows us that we need to prepare for the wilderness, because sooner or later, we're all going to face it. So how do you find God in the wilderness? How do you process your pain? How do you, how do you prepare? We're going to look at three things in today's passage to, to wrestle with this story. Uh, the first is we're going to look at the danger of the wilderness. The second thing we're going to look at is the opportunity of the wilderness and the last thing we're going to look at is the savior of the wilderness. So let's start with the danger of the wilderness. Uh, we, if you look at verse 1, which was not included in the reading today, we had to cut some verses out so that we wouldn't stay here till tomorrow reading this passage. But if you look at verse 1, it tells us that six weeks have passed since the Red Sea, so, the people of Israel have been wandering in the wilderness. They just got through the Red Sea. It's been about a month and a half, and the, their supplies are starting to run low. There's, there's no grocery stores, there's, there are no farms, and it's, they're in the desert, and there's no food. And so, if you ask an Israelite, what is the biggest danger you're facing in the wilderness? Everybody would have said, we're running low on food. We are in danger of starvation. And this is why they start grumbling against Moses and Aaron. And verse 2 tells us that the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. This wasn't just a few upset people, but the entire nation was grumbling against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites, they thought the greatest danger in the wilderness was starvation, But what this passage shows us is that the true danger of the wilderness is not starvation, but grumbling. And and, and you might be thinking, that sounds like a stretch. Grumbling? I'm pretty sure starvation is more dangerous than grumbling. Why is grumbling dangerous? Well, let me show you three reasons grumbling is dangerous. The first reason is that grumbling is hostile. Listen to what verse 2 tells us. It says, in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. They didn't grumble to Moses and Aaron. They grumbled against Moses and Aaron. This is an accusatory grumbling. They were blaming Aaron and Moses for their pain, for their problems. This past week was Valentine's Day, and NPR p- posted this article about, with, with some best practices from therapy about how to work on your relationship. And as, as an example of what not to do, they posted this cartoon. Uh, notice that it's a romantic dinner, there's a couple, one partner says, mm, good soup. And then suddenly the, next, the, the other partner says, you are so selfish. You always think only of yourself, and I don't feel heard. Now, the, per- the person with a complaint here, they may have a legitimate complaint, but this is a picture of grumbling, because notice there is no room for conversation. There is no room for discussion. There is no room to work out difference. This is emotional blackmail. This is one person saying to another, I am unhappy, and unless you give me what I want, I will remain unhappy, and I will hate you for it, and I will resent you and blame you for it. See, grumbling is hostile. It's accusatory. Instead of inviting people in to work through difficulty, it pushes people out. And the problem with grumbling is that it pushes the people that we need most away in the moments where we need them the most. When you are in the wilderness, you will be tempted to grumble. You'll be tempted to rush to judgment. You'll be tempted to push people away in the moments where you actually need them the most. Grumbling is hostile. The second thing uh, the second danger of grumbling is that grumbling is delusional. Look at what verse 3 tells us. And for ye only had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we had sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Look, listen to how delusional this complaint is. They, they think, the Israelites think that life was better in Egypt, the place where they were enslaved, the place where their babies were drowned in the Nile River, the place that, where they were whipped and worked to death. When you are in the wilderness, you are going to be tempted to exaggerate your pain and to glorify your past life. Uh, you're going to be tempted to wonder if your life was better before God ever came into your life, before God ever started changing your life. You're going you're gonna to be tempted to wonder, was I better off in my old life before I started following God? Was I happier then? They were delusional about their slavery, but that's not all. They were even delusional about their need. Take a look at what happens in the next chapter chapter 7 one chapter later they're still grumbling it says but the people were thirsty for water there and they grumbled against Moses they said why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst they had livestock back in chapter 16 they had livestock which means they could have drank milk they could have made cheese they could have they had meat They were nowhere near the danger of starvation, and yet they acted like they were about to starve to death. When you are in the wilderness, you will be tempted to ignore all the good things God has put in your life and minimize those things and to exaggerate the things that you do not have. You'll be tempted to think the worst of your situation and feel like God has completely abandon you. You'll be tempted to think things like, no one loves me, no one cares about me, everyone is against me, God is against me. Which brings us to the last danger of grumbling. Grumbling is against God. All grumbling is ultimately not about the things that we are grumbling about, but about God. Listen to what Aaron and Moses say to the people of Israel in verse 8. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Against the Lord. What are they saying? They're saying, we are not responsible. The, the, The person you're really mad at is not us. You are mad at God. The Israelites thought their problem was Aaron and Moses, but it was actually their problem was with God. Uh, there, Back in 20, 2021, two years before he went to be with the Lord, um, after a long battle with cancer, uh, Pastor Tim Keller gave this interview, and this was one year after it had become public that he had pancreatic can- cancer. And uh, 2021, it's still the pandemic, and this, this interview is not about his cancer at all. It's actually about Christianity and culture. Uh, and in, all, in an almost throwaway line, as the interviewer is catching up with, with Tim Keller, uh, this is what he says. He says, that, he says that his real fight, people ask him about how his fight with cancer is going, and he says, My real fight is not against cancer, my real fight is against my sin. And this is what he says He says, If it wasn't for my sin, I would be completely resting in Christ, and the resurrection would be spiritually real to me, and I would be fine spiritually and emotionally and in every way. I was driving in my car as I listened to this podcast, and I literally had to pull over, rewind, and listen to it again. How do you say that you're that your real fight is not with cancer, and that your real fight is with your sin. Only if you understand that your greatest danger is not the wilderness, but grumbling. That grumbling separates you from God, that grumbling damages your ability to trust God and His goodness and His provision, to believe that God will do something good in your life even in the wilderness. This is not the way that I naturally think. When I I am in the wilderness, I do not think that my biggest problem is my sin. I think my biggest problem is the wilderness. But what we need most in the wilderness is God. We need God. We need His wisdom. We need His love. We need His power. And when we push Him away, we lose the very things that are going to sustain us there's a huge difference between grumbling and lament in the bible in exodus 16 we see a picture of grumbling grumbling is hostile it's delusional and it is it pushes god away lament lament is a biblical word that describes what happens when people who believe in god and follow jesus bring god their hurt their pain their trauma and they say help me. Grumbling pushes God away. Lament draws you closer to God. Grumbling leads to isolation and anger and pain and hurt. Lament leads to healing and life. How How do you see the opportunities of the wilderness? See, God is giving us takes us into the wilderness to open a world of opportunity to us. But how can we see God this way? This brings us to the second thing here that we're going to look at, which is the opportunity of the wilderness. The people of Israel, they thought that God had made a mistake. And this passage shows us that the people of Israel were exactly where God wanted them to be. And we are exactly where God wants us to be when we find ourselves in the wilderness. And how do we know that? We know that because God, the wilderness is God's training ground to make us grow. This is God's process. This is God's method to grow us in our love, and our dependence for Him. And this is why God says that He will test His people in the wilderness. Take a look. Uh, t- take a look here at verse 4. God says, I will rain down bread from heaven for you, The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. God uses the wilderness to test his people. And some of you are getting triggered by that word, test. Uh, You're thinking, well, this is exactly what I thought God was. God wants to test me, and he wants to see if I'm going to pass or I'm going to fail. But that's not the kind of test that God is talking about here. We test ourselves in all sorts of ways. I've been a diabetic for 26 years, which means every day I am supposed to test my blood sugar, uh, ideally twice a day. And, And you may have noticed I said I'm supposed to because I don't. Right? But why am I supposed to do that? Because I need to know what my blood sugar level is to figure out if I need to adjust my medication, if I need to adjust my diet, if I need to make changes so that I don't have more complications from this chronic condition. Uh, I had this encounter with my doctor many years ago that was really eye-opening for me. Uh, I was talking to him, my, my blood sugar was out of control and he said, are you testing? And I said, no, I, I, doc, I'm not testing myself. And he said, if, "If you can't, Dave, you can't play the game if you don't know the score, right?" And it was eye-opening for me because I realized I, 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 need to know where I am at. And this is what we do. All of us test ourselves. This is why we go on the scale to see how much we weigh. We're testing ourselves. This is why we do our dance moves in the mirror, right? We're testing ourselves, like, do I look good? This is why we ask our family and friends uh, for feedback about our cooking, because we want to grow, we want to get better, right? We all test ourselves, and God, God when, when the people of Israel, when the people of Israel grumbled against him, God, God's response was to test them, not a pass or fail test, because if it was pass or fail, Israel already failed. God would have sent them back to Egypt, and he would have said, let's see how well you like Egypt, and let's see how long it takes for you to come crawling back to me. But that's not what God does. God provides quail from heaven, bread from heaven, to test his people, to train his people, to open a world of opportunity to his people in the wilderness. So how does God wanna grow us? In three ways, and we're gonna move through these three things pretty quickly. God wants to grow us in trust, in generosity, and in rest, and He does all three of these things in the wilderness. That very night, God provides quail from heaven for everyone to eat, and some people say, well, this was just the natural migratory pattern of that particular quail, but how did God predict that they would come in this moment in the wilderness at that day and at that time, and in addition... If you look at Psalm 78, Psalm 78 says that God rained meat down on them like dust, flying birds like sand on the seashore. There there were so many quail that you could barely see the ground. Scholars estimate that there were two million people in the wilderness. Can you imagine quail uh, to to feed two million people? This was a miraculous provision. What is God doing? God is teaching his people to trust in him. And then out of, every six out of seven days, for the next 40 years, God didn't bring quail every day, but every, every six out of seven days for the next 40 years, God rained down manna from heaven. This bread that was like coriander and tasted like honey wafers, Uh, The the Israelites said, what is this? Which which is the Hebrew word manna, which is why they called it manna. And they ate this food, this bread from heaven for 40 years, not because they worked hard, not because they they, they were so holy, because they were so righteous, because they were so full of faith. They ate it not because they deserved it, but even though they didn't deserve it, they ate this bread because God is trustworthy. And so God is training his people to trust him And he tells the people of Israel that they must not store their manna overnight. Because if they store it, it will spoil it'll be filled with maggots, and it will start to smell really nasty. And the people do it anyway. And the people do it anyway. But God's training them. He's training them to trust. You know, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches us to pray for our daily bread. And this is a really challenging thing to pray if you think about it. Bread every day, not bread that's going to get me through the the week, not bread that's going to get me through the month, not bread that's going to get me through the year. Why does Jesus teach us to pray this way? Because God wants us to trust Him not once a week, not once a month, not once a year, but every day, every moment. And the reality is, whether we trust God or not, all we have is our daily bread, Tomorrow is not promised to any of us. Everything that we have every day comes from the hand of God. And the wilderness crystallizes this reality for us. The second thing that God wants to train his people in is generosity. Generosity. Verses 17 through 18 tell us that some people gathered a little bit. Some people gathered a lot, but everybody had everything that they need. If you go down to verse 22, we learn that what everybody had was not only enough, but it was the same. Everyone got one omer of manna. So how does this math work? How how can some people gather a lot, some people gather a little, and everyone end up with one omer of manna? And the answer is, not everybody gathered equally, but everybody shared. Everybody grew in generosity. There were some people who couldn't gather, some people who were disabled, some people who were sick. The elderly, babies could not gather, but everybody ate. Everybody had one omer. Why? Because the people of Israel were learning to grow in generosity. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Verses 13 through 15, Paul encourages the church in Corinth to give to the poor, and the story he uses to encourage them is the story of Exodus 16. He says, there will be equality as it is written. He who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered too little did not have too little. When you are in the wilderness, you learn what it is to be in need, and this helps you grow in generosity some of the most generous people in our church people who are generous with their money people who are generous with their time people who are generous with their stories are people who have been through the wilderness to be generous with someone who is in need you need to know what it's like to be in need and the wilderness trains us in this way it trains us to share our resources with others The third way that God wants to train us and grow us in the wilderness is rest, rest. Verse 22 tells us that every sixth day they gathered twice as much, two omers, and they ate one omer and they saved the second omer and it didn't spoil. Why? Why on the seventh day were they able to save an extra omer that didn't spoil? Because on the seventh day, on the Sabbath day, there was no manna. Because God wanted the Sabbath to be a day of rest. And so what did the people of Israel do? A bunch of them went out to try to look for manna anyway on the Sabbath and there was no manna on the Sabbath. The people of Israel, the people of Israel, imagine what this lesson meant to this people who were recently enslaved. Imagine what it meant for a, recently enslaved person to experience sabbath the people of israel were used to finding their value and their security in their work they knew that they were only safe when they were doing a good job and here god is training them god is growing them to live in a different way god is saying your life and your value doesn't depend on your work it depends on my steadfast love so learn to rest. We have this idea that rest is a luxury. Have you ever thought that way? Have you ever lived that way? As if rest is a luxury. I know I have. We, 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 we tell ourselves, I'm going to rest when I have time. I'm going to rest after I, I finish that big interview or that big project or that, that big deal. This is just a busy season Don't worry, I'll I'll, I'll eventually rest. But what if one day out of seven, you didn't rest because of what you had or what was going on, but because of who God is? What if one day out of seven, you treated rest not as a luxury, but as an act of faith? Then you would be able to find rest in the wilderness. God's training his people, training them to grow in trust, grow in generosity, grow in rest. How did they do? They did really poorly. They didn't grow nearly enough. They failed over and over again. How are we doing? If we're honest with ourselves, we learn lessons only to forget them. We repeat the same mistakes over and over again. And despite all the things that God teaches us in the wilderness, we forget So how can we make these lessons stick? How can we grow in these areas that God wants to grow us? And this brings us to the last thing we're going to look at today, the Savior of the wilderness. At the end of this passage, God commands Moses to take one omer of bread, put it in a jar, then put it before the Lord for the generations to come. And one day, after Israel receives the tablets of God's covenant, Aaron would take that jar of manna and put it in the ark together with the tablets. And that ark would eventually be put in the most holy place of the tabernacle and then the most holy place of the temple in Jerusalem. And for thousands of years, with the wilderness behind them, generations and generations would come to worship God and to remember the manna in the holy place. Why would the people of Israel need manna after they left the wilderness? Why would they need this reminder in the land flowing with milk and honey? Well, it's because they never learned to stop grumbling. Even when they were out of the wilderness, the wilderness was still inside of them. Even when they were living in the promised land, they acted as if God was often against them. They would struggle to trust, to be generous, to rest, to take care of the poor, to take care of the vulnerable. They would languish under the rule of godless rulers. And, it, and, and, and enslaving habits. See, deep down, our sin-fractured hearts can't help grumbling. And what the manna in the jar points to is that we have a never-ending need for hev- bread from heaven. We, it, it points to, actually, the true bread from heaven. It points to, it points to Jesus. Take a look at what happens in John chapter 6. Jesus has just finished feeding the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. And after this miracle, he goes across the lake and the people follow him there. And Jesus says, I know why you're here. You just want more food. And then he says this. He says, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life To the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus is saying that he is the true manna from heaven, the true bread from heaven. What does that mean? It means that. He can do something that food for 5,000 people cannot. Jesus can do something that manna that feeds people for 40 years cannot. Jesus is the bread from heaven who gives his body as the bread, his life, his soul, who dies so that you and I can live. Take a look at what he says later in verse 51. He says, the bread is my flesh. Which I will give for the life of the world. And this means that even when we grumble, even when we struggle, even when we are stingy, even when we find ourselves, find it impossible to rest, even when we push God away, He pursues us in love and gives Himself to us to heal us completely and to feed us. And he gives us this promise that however bad the wilderness gets in our life, that the wilderness will not be our home, that he is bringing us to a better home. Throughout this month, we've been featuring the stories of just exceptional stories of faith by African-American Christians. And we've been celebrating the gift that the black church is to the whole church. And today, I want to share a story about uh, a man named Thomas Dorsey. That's Thomas Andrew Dorsey. Thomas Dorsey was uh, the chief choir director of Pilgrim Baptist Church in Chicago, and he served there for 50 years. Uh, He wrote over a 1,000 gospel songs. He's been called the father of gospel music. And when he was 32 years old, still a newlywed expecting his first child, uh, something happened to him. He was living in Chicago, serving at this church, uh, Pilgrim Baptist Church. His, it was his, his wife was due in one month, and he got an invitation to lead a revival in St. Louis. And he didn't want to go, but he, he felt really bad. They really wanted him. He didn't want to disappoint people, and so he went to lead this revival. It went really late. And at the end of the revival, when he finally got the chance to sit down, he got this telegram, your wife just died. And he rushed home. And he he learned that his wife had given birth to a son. And he was was going back and forth between joy and sorrow. And And it was a roller coaster. And then that night his baby boy died. And he was drowning in sorrow. And listen to what he says. He says, I felt that God had done me an injustice. I didn't want to serve him anymore, or write gospel songs. But that Saturday, a music professor, a mentor of his, took him to the neighborhood school, the music school, put him in a room where he wrote his best known gospel song ever, Take My Hand, Precious Lord. And here's the first stanza. Precious Lord, take my hand. Lead me on, let me stand. I am tired, I am weak, I am worn. Through the storm, through the night, Lead me on to the light. Take my hand, precious Lord. Lead me home. Lead me home. How do you call God your precious Lord when you've just lost your wife and your son? The only way that you do that is because you believe that your precious Lord also lost his son so that you can have life, and your wife can have life, and your son can have life. The only answer is that your precious Lord is the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, in the face of the worst wilderness he would ever face, Dorsey saw that Jesus is precious, that God is precious, and he asked him to take his hand. He didn't write, precious Lord, show me your plan. That's what I would have wanted. He wrote, Precious Lord, take my hand. And there's so much hope in those words because if your only hope in the wilderness is that God shows you his plan, God, show me your plan. Show me the way out of this wilderness. Show me how you're going to make things right. Show me how this is going to end. If that's your only hope, then only the wise, only the godly, only the very religious might even dream of having hope. But if your hope, your hope in the wilderness is that your precious Lord takes your hand, then everyone can have hope because even a baby can hold someone's hand. And this is the hope that God offers you this morning. Not a hope to take away your wilderness, but to train you in the wilderness and to hold your hand in the wilderness. And this table this table is God's invitation to take Jesus, the bread of life, to take this cup, the cup of salvation, to take it into our hearts so that we may hold on to his hand wherever he might lead us. On the night that the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, And he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. And as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the gift of Jesus, the bread from heaven. Lord, for this cup that gives us life. And we pray that in all the ways that we are struggling, that we are doubting, Lord, in all the ways that we are afraid, that you would bring us assurance that, that is bigger than us, bigger than our circumstance, bigger than our pain, and Lord, that you would train us to trust you to be generous and to rest in Jesus. We ask this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.